Good morning. I woke up this morning with a dreaded cold in my throat. At first, I sounded like some sort of bad parody of Johnny Cash or something this morning. I think it's evened out a little bit, hopefully. Hopefully, it's not too distracting. This morning, we're going to continue through this long middle section of Luke's gospel, where we've been for a while, where Luke is thematically placing accounts of Jesus' actions and teachings to answer the question, what does discipleship look like? Last week, Colin showed us two women who knew Christ well and who were loved by Him and who loved Him. And yet Mary knew what was most important above all the worries and distractions of life. She knew what was most important was her relationship with Christ, listening to His words in order to know Him. But relationship is a two-way street. What God says to us and what we say to God. And Jesus proves this in the first verse of Luke chapter 11 where He is found praying to His Father. And the disciples and we want to learn how to talk to the Father too. This is the good news of Jesus Christ found in Luke's gospel at account It's an account that includes more material on prayer than any other gospel. And it is a good news that proclaims who God is and what God wants and what God provides. All with a view of imparting grace to His people in order to change them into those who can stand face to face with His holiness. We find it in Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4 with also some background given in the second half of Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. You can find it on page 6 of your bulletin. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And from Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Our Father, we do come to you this morning as your beloved sons and daughters adopted into your home and family. We come asking that you would make your name holy in this place, that you would make yourself known as the distinct and unique one. We ask that your kingdom would come among us this morning, that you would perform your kingdom works by the power of the Spirit through the person of Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would continue to provide this day our daily bread, sustaining our needs, sustaining our spiritual needs through the bread and the wine we shall take here in a moment. We ask that you would forgive us our sins as we continue to forgive those who sin against us. And we ask as well, Father, that you will lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, deliver us from distraction, deliver us from our idols, deliver us from all the things that we would rather worry about, and instead bring our attention to your holy word and to what it is your spirit is illuminating in our hearts concerning your word. We pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. You can be seated. It's usually in the top five words that a child first learns. At least that's been the case for our first daughter, and it's definitely the case for our youngest, Emily. And of course, it's one of the first words that a little child learns to say because It's a word that they hear so often, the word no. But in our house, it's it's pretty fun right now because not only is Emily saying no so clearly, she's saying it with a lot of gusto. And she's saying it not with the N sound, but with the M sound. And so it often comes out as mo. And she drags it out with conviction and a furrowed brow, a look of Eastern European disdain on her face. <laughs> it's kind of like what you might expect a cat to sound like if, that, if the cat was also a Russian czar. Just going, <laughs> And like so many toddlers, the word no, it gets a really broad range of use by Emily. So broad, in fact that it's often used by her to mean the opposite of what the word actually means. And this is true for a lot of toddlers. And so, Emmy, would you like some ice cream? Mo? And Emily, it's it's time to get ready for bed now. Mo! Those are two different uses that are common. And the only difference between them, of course, is just the tone. Same word very different tone. But different tones can be used to communicate not always opposite meanings, but different tones can be used to communicate meanings that complement one another, truths that coexist together, even though it may not be apparent at first how they exist together. 
When asked the question, what is prayer? A typical evangelical Christian answer is, prayer is simply talking to God. And just because I assigned this answer to typical evangelical circles does not mean that we should criticize it. It's a fine answer, actually. But some of us need to hear this answer, this definition, in different tones. And we need to hear it inflected in different ways, depending on who we are. I grew up in evangelical circles where familiarity with God was always emphasized, where worship and our approach to Scripture and our approach to church life was typically about reaching up and trying to bring God down to our world, to make Him a familiar figure, to bring God into everyday life, to stress the common and the regular features of the faith. And so prayer was approached as a casual practice. And as a result, the definition, prayer is simply talking to God, was usually inflected like this. Prayer is simply talking to God. The idea being, hey, don't get yourself too out of whack here, okay? When you boil it down, we're, we're just talking. We're using our normal words to talk to God like a friend would a friend. We don't need a special language. We don't need a theology degree. God already knows what is on your heart, so just tell Him and be real with Him. And if you need to cry, then cry. And if you need to yell, then yell. And if you need to just stammer and stutter for a while because you're not sure how to express your deep joy or your deep sorrow or your deep wonder, then you know what? That's okay too. He's there and he's listening no matter what. And you know what? That's a great answer. It's all true. Prayer is simply talking to God. But there's also another way that we can use that very same definition with a different tone, a different inflection to remind ourselves of something else in prayer. Let's say the same definition another way. Prayer is simply talking to God. We're saying something different now, aren't we? We're putting a little bit of a different spin on what it is that we're doing, aren't we? Because now the emphasis isn't on how normal and how common and how familiar it ought to feel to have God on your shoulder. Rather, you're meant to think of the fact that you are actually communicating with the one who has all life in himself, the one whose existence depends on nothing and no one, the one who has simply always been without beginning outside of time, outside of material space, the one who exists at the beginning of all things and at the end of all things and right in this moment, all at the same time, whatever that means. You're speaking to the one who knows what you are thinking and what you're really wanting at every moment. The one who knows what sort of movement or change every cell in your body is about ready to undergo 
And yet the one who loves you. How do these two different inflections of prayer is simply talking to God go together? How do we stand before a being so holy that we would be consumed and yet feel warmed instead of incinerated? How do we live daily face to face with fire? I don't think this was the question that the disciple of Luke 11 verse 1 thought he was asking when he said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I mean, the disciple certainly couldn't have been completely unfamiliar with prayer. He'd heard of it. He'd seen it done. Had certainly engaged in prayers himself at the local synagogue and maybe even the, greatest, the great temple in Jerusalem on high holy days and festivals. And he recognized that it was common for religious leaders and rabbis to teach their disciples such things, just as John the Baptist had done. But he had no idea of the full identity of the one teaching him right now. And so Jesus teaches this man how to pray. But he does so much more than teach him words to say. What we have in the Lord's Prayer, which we get in a shorter version here and in a longer version in Matthew 6, is a liturgical prayer for the people of God, no doubt. So in verse 2, the word you in verse 2 is a plural second person. If Jesus were addressing us, he might say, y'all. Notice the use of the first person in this version of the prayer too. There's us and our in verse 3. Us and we and us again in verse 4. These are all plural pronouns. And so it's a communal prayer. We're supposed to pray it not just alone, but together like we do on Sunday mornings in our church. But there's a reason why Jesus wants his people to pray these things, whether they're alone in their bedrooms or together as the gathered church. This prayer is more than just a litany of words to say. It's more than something simply to just be repeated word for word. It is a theological roadmap for approaching God. Telling us so much about who He is and what God cares about. What He wants. And how we should approach Him in light of that. And how God uses prayer to change us. So the Lord's Prayer gives us an order of concepts Sure, it can be used to pray word for word, but each line, each part of the prayer also stands as kind of a chapter heading for us to fill in the chapter every time we pray. The first word Jesus teaches this disciple to use would have been quite unusual. It wasn't typical for Jews to use this word when talking to God. It might have been shocking. And Jesus says, when you pray, say Father, Jesus begins the prayer he teaches with a term of endearment, close relationship, and warm security and kindness. Father, who does Jesus want you to think God is when you approach him? Jesus wants you to think when you approach God that he is your loving father. Jesus knows that we are but dust, as Psalm 103 puts it. 
He knows that we are weak and he knows that we're frail and forgetful and discouraged by our sin daily. And so he knows what we need when we begin to pray. And what we need, he knows, is a reminder of who our God is. Not simply who he is in the abstract by himself, but who he is to us. And what we need before we ask anything, according to what God would want or according to what our needs are, is to be drawn in. We need to be drawn in. Oftentimes, especially when children are small, before they ask a parent or a grandparent or maybe even a trusted adult friend for something, what do they do? They will oftentimes come over and they will crawl up into your lap. And then they ask. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, yeah, that's right. That's how you do it. You crawl up into the lap of consuming fire because he's your father. And what does that do for us? How does that change us? Well, it removes fear of judgment. It it provides rest from the security of knowing that we are known and loved by the one who is infinite knowledge and infinite love. It reminds you that God is for you, that he wants his best for you. And this produces a love in your heart that answers the movement of his love towards you. And this change draws you into the rest of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. The 5th century church father, Cyril of Alexandria, he reminds us, if a person says, our father, hallowed be your name, he is not requesting any addition to be made to God's holiness. That's a good point. So we're not saying, hey, God, You want to take it up a notch a little bit? You want to raise the bar on your holiness if you could? No. But we are asking God to act. And what are we asking Him to do? We're asking Him to cause His uniqueness to be made known. We're saying here, would you, Father, also make yourself known today? in my life, in the situations that I encounter, as the one who dwells in a category all your own? Would you, Father, in in the confusion and the heartache and the perversion and rebellion that we see in our city and in our country and in our world, would you cause your character, would you cause your name to be seen as holy, as pure, as mighty and awesome and beyond figuring out, would you make yourself known as the God who hates evil and loves good and consumes rebellion and injustice with a holy fire? Would you do that, God? Hallowed be your name. You see, just just because God is our Father doesn't mean we can figure Him out. Just because he loves us with an infinite love that cost him the life of his own son 
doesn't mean that everything he does in our lives to love us will feel like love in the moment. Just because God has come near and drawn you up into his lap doesn't mean he's your buddy. You get to crawl up into his lap, but you don't get to put him in your pocket. And what this does is it explodes modern conceptions and expectations and outright demands of what it has to mean to have an intimate relationship. Because for moderns like us, close fellowship and relationship can only be had with those that you understand well and thoroughly. And even beyond that, those who are like you. We spend a lot of time demanding that people become more like us so we can have a relationship with them. And the first line of Jesus' prayer says to this idea, nope. We'll come back to this a little later. But the gospel, the central message of Christianity is the reason why the God who's in a category of existence all his own, a God beyond figuring out, even if you were to learn of him for an eternity, can also be so near and intimately acquainted with his children. This part of the prayer, hallowed be your name, it serves as the link between who God is and what God wants. And what does he want? He wants to be made known. He wants to be revealed, which is another way of saying he wants to be glorified. The next line of the prayer draws this into tighter focus. Your kingdom come. God uses means. God uses actions to make himself known. And here we're asking God to make known what kind of God he is by using visible means of demonstrating that his kingdom is showing up. When we say, your kingdom come, We're praying that God use visible means now, this morning, this afternoon, to signal to the world that the era of his kingdom breaking into history has begun. And so what does this mean? Well, in the context of Luke, it means that God would bring about the proclamation of the kingdom message and kingdom works that we've already been hearing about through Jesus in Luke's gospel. Works of mercy and healing and education and freeing captives from the powers of Satan. We could go on. But it's not a request that God simply make us do-gooders. That God make us social justice warriors and that's it. The devil's kingdom has an army of social justice warriors that can mimic all sorts of Christian kingdom works. But the devil will never, ever want to give credit where it is due. He can mimic Christian do-gooding, but won't ever allow it to be harnessed to the power of who Jesus is and why Jesus came and what Jesus will do when he comes again. And that's why when we say your kingdom come, 
We are asking God to change our purposes, to impart to us His priorities, so that we always harness good works, not to our bandwagon, but to the person and work and movement of Jesus in the world. Because when we don't harness the works of the kingdom to the king himself, the unintended and sometimes intended message becomes, well, I figured out how to live sacrificially. I figured out how to care about the poor and the disadvantaged and about injustice. Why haven't you? Your kingdom come means, Father, let your chosen king, King Jesus, be made known through the message and works of his kingdom citizens. And as this part of the prayer changes our priorities and our purposes, we also stay humble and dependent, which is what the rest of the prayer is about. Because the rest of the prayer is about neediness, our neediness, and God's provision in the face of that neediness. Give us each day our daily bread. Reminds us of our physical and spiritual neediness for strength, for sustenance. Regardless of of how full your bank account is or how empty, your dependence upon God's provision is unchanged. In the hands of your father, your ultimate destruction and poverty is a needless worry. And the unbreakable security of your wealth is an illusion. That is why in Matthew's account, and Matthew's inclusion of the Lord's Prayer, he puts it in chapter 6 of his gospel, which is in very close proximity with Jesus' words. If your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field, then you have nothing to worry about. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you and taken care of. And it's just as near to a section in Matthew 6 to Jesus' teaching on not seeking treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but up above where your heavenly treasure shall have no spot or wrinkle, or dust, even after 10,000 years. Give us this day our daily bread, gives us the capacity to walk through life free of fear and free of greed and self-reliance. The last two lines of this prayer help us to walk the narrow road a difficult road between the ditches of judgmental moralism on this side and then license and antinomianism being against God's law, flaunting his law on that side. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. As one scholar has said, a forgiven person is to be a forgiving person. Who can expect to be forgiven by God? The one who has a forgiving heart. 
towards those who have wronged her. Who is that kind of person? The one who can call God her father? Which is only possible through Jesus. To forgive means to release all desire, all rights to achieve vengeance on the one who has hurt you or offended you or hurt or offended others. It means to stop playing the lawyer in the courtroom of your mind where you're constantly trying a case against your enemy, meditating on the list of wrongs they have done. To forgive may or or may not release your enemy of anything. They may never repent. They may never ask you for forgiveness. But forgiving always releases you. Because trying cases all day long like that every day is exhausting and it changes you into a hardened and unfeeling person. And it keeps you a victim. You must always be the victim now of that person. It allows what's happened in your past to continue to dictate your present, making you always the victim. And so forgiveness frees you from that. You don't have to be the victim anymore. And you don't have to be the lawyer anymore. And through Jesus you can say, the penalty for what they've done to me is paid. Just as your father says that about you. Also through Jesus. And this aspect of the gospel coming through this prayer for us, it It springs you from your own prison and it keeps you off the judge's bench all at the same time. And there's no other way to have unity and peace with others or yourself. But when we put this together with and lead us not into temptation... We see how God's grace in this prayer keeps us not just from bitter judgmentalism, but also from becoming the antinomian, the one who stands against God's law because he thinks that he's a law unto himself, either because he gets to decide what is right and wrong or because he thinks grace is owed to him and he has a free ticket to sin. Instead, this part of the Lord's prayer says, Be weary. Be wary of the paths that lead to evil and do not even desire to explore them. You have no idea what you're asking for. You cannot play with sin as though it is a tamed tiger for no tiger is ever truly tame. In the end, it plays with you until it's too late. Don't continue running down the paths of sin saying to yourself, It's okay. God will forgive me later. For what you forget is the further your journey goes down the paths of sin and addiction, the more your heart may not want forgiveness or even see the need for it anymore. And at that point, you are a slave indeed. And the gospel given to us in this prayer is the answer to either approach to sin, either judgmentalism 
or license. God's grace to us in the Lord's Prayer shows us who God is, giving us a heart that grows in love for Him and adoration for Him. It invites us to ask God to do His will, to reveal Himself and His kingdom through concrete means and situations. And this changes our purposes and motivations and goals. And the grace of God and the Lord's Prayer guides us to ask God to meet our needs, giving us the capacity to not be afraid of want, to not be dependent on what we can see, to walk free of guilt and shame, to not always be someone else's victim in our minds because of our past, through forgiveness. And it gives us the capacity to entrust ourselves to God's greater strength against Satan and our corrupt desires. The reading from the first part of Exodus 33, which Tyler read for us earlier, it takes place right after the people of Israel had made an idol in the wilderness. I mean, they are there at Mount Sinai, and they have made an idol in the wilderness right at the foot of God's mountain. And they have worshipped it. And God is angry. And God threatens to destroy the people completely. But Moses intervenes. The people appear at the entrance of their tents every day and watch Moses silently leave the campground and go out to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting set up outside the camp in order to speak one-on-one with God, to urge him to relent from his judgment and to spare the people. Moses stands in the presence of God's consuming fire. And if I were to summarize what their conversation sounds like from the passage printed for you from Exodus 33, the second half, I would say their conversation sounds like the Lord's Prayer. Moses says, Lord, you've chosen me and made me your own, right? You've given me your gracious favor and brought me into a close and intimate relationship with you, right? If so, show me your ways. Reveal yourself. Consider that these are your people, the people of your chosen kingdom. Don't destroy them, but reveal yourself through them by showing them to be distinct from all the other peoples of the world. Forgive them, Lord, by your own presence. Provide for us and stay near to us and guide us as we go into the rest that you've promised for us in the promised land. And I think Moses' prayer here touches the heart of God. You know why? Because, Because Moses is basically saying here, I want you more than anything else, God. I want you. I want you more than all the blessings that we could have had or might lose in the future. I don't care about those more than I care about just having you. And so if going forward means losing you, then I'm not taking another step. You hear me? 
If you don't go with us, we don't have anything, even if we get everything. And the one who is teaching us how to pray here in Luke 11 is the very same one who says, You have found favor in the sight of my Father and in my sight, and I know you by name. And while Moses had to be hidden from the face of God while he passed by so that he wouldn't be consumed by the fire, Jesus came and showed us his face. He contained all the fire within himself so we could be with him and he with us even now. He endured all the fire of God's judgment for sin on himself on the cross. And if he is yours by faith, then you can approach the tabernacle of God's presence with Jesus and in Jesus and stand in the presence of fire and not be burned. This is the grace of our God. Let us believe and be changed. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for giving us your means of grace. We thank you for giving us your holy word inspired by your Holy Spirit without error to guide us and lead us to understand more and more of who you are, to guide us and lead us to understand the good news of who your Son is and what he has done, to transform us more and more into the image of your Son as it goes down deep into our hearts. We thank you for giving us the means of grace of prayer wherein we can bring our requests to you or we can talk to you. And you even use our prayers to you to change us. We thank you for this grace. And we thank you even now for the means of grace of the Lord's table the bread and the wine set before us, use these things as well to continue to work in us, to continue to change us, to continue to hold out to us the gospel in taste and drink. You might grow in us more and more the image of Christ and a love for you, our Father, confirming within us that we are your children, that we might be a holy nation, a kingdom going forth, doing kingdom works together with kingdom proclamation that your chosen king would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.